Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 9. Revelation chapter 9. As I say that, I will have you turn back to Revelation 1. And I do this because I feel that if, if we want to have a grasp of this book, we need to understand some of its basic points. The book, as we carefully look at what it says, is much easier to understand. And we need to consider what type of book is this? Revelation 1 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this. This is a prophetic book. This is a book of prophecy. The way this book begins sounds just like a prophetic book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word of the prophet. This is a book of prophecy. Yet we get to verse 4. And we find that this book is written in a certain kind of form. Look at verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Now that sounds just like an epistle. Because this book is in the form of an epistle. And letters, epistles, have common characteristics. They have introductions and conclusions. They are written with a certain occasion in mind. They have a section of doctrine and application. There are statements of truth and applications of truth. And the same is here in Revelation, except the truths are future truths, and the application of the truths comes first. The majority of the ethical commands, what we must do, take place in chapters 2 and 3. You see, if you want to know how to apply this book, read the letters. If you want to know why you ought to obey the commands of the letters, read the prophecy. And that point is magnified in our study when we come to chapter 9. Let's ask for God's grace once more as we look at His Word together. Father, this is a passage... That is dark. And you have given it to us. And we will not try to quickly run through it as if you didn't say it and we're ashamed to go over it together. We don't get to decide what you say. We have to learn what you've said. So Lord, give us hearts that are ready and willing to consider what you've said. In such a passage, we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Our age provides us with innumerable ways to waste time. With notifications at every turn, I found myself reading and listening to news about the upcoming elections. And then in the midst of an article, I asked myself the question, why am I wasting time? I already know how I'm going to vote. Well, many people have thought the same thing when they come to the book of Revelation. Why learn about the judgment that's to come upon the wicked? I'm not going to be here anyway. I'm going to be in heaven. So why read about this? 
Or others ask this question. Why would God tell the churches of Asia Minor in the first century about events thousands of years later? That would be a waste of time and wouldn't help them in the least, they say. Still others don't feel that way at all. They're enamored with passages like Revelation 9. Believing that these passages are about modern warfare with modern weapons between specific modern nations. There are countless sermons on America and Russia and helicopters and takes that make this passage a blockbuster passage. How much better it would be for us to carefully consider the text and the overall context of the book. And by God's grace, we'll try to stick to the text, neither being too specific where the text isn't, or being symbolic where the text provides us no warrant. So we're going into chapter 9, but we've already been given notice of what we're going to find here. And I always appreciate that as I study God's Word, when God gives us a notice of what we're about to have, or summarizes what's to come. And that summary is in chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 13, the angel called out, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now just imagine if those woes had been said, Woe, woe, woe to those in Waterville, New York. What sort of impact would that have? Terror. And that terror is not localized to our town, but it is worldwide. And Jesus has already told the church in Philadelphia about this terrible time upon the earth that will try those who dwell upon the earth, chapter 3, verse 10. What we find is that those who dwell on the earth are in the crosshairs of the wrath of the Lamb. This chapter is divided into three parts. First, the fifth trumpet judgment, then the sixth trumpet judgment, and then a summary report about those who dwell on the earth in the aftermath of these judgments. This is similar to Revelation 6, where there is a fearful statement of those who dwell on the earth. At the end of the judgment, we hear from them in verse 17. It says, the great day of their wrath has come. And this chapter continues the wrath of the Lamb that he authorizes. He authorizes supernatural judgments against the world. He's broken the seventh seal that started the seven trumpet judgments And this chapter is going to show us the severity and the mercy of the Lamb. So we'll see first in verses 1 through 19, supernatural judgments await those who dwell on the earth. There's a shift in the way that these judgments are described as we move from chapter 8 to chapter 9. In the end of chapter 8, the eagle warned us that there was dreadful judgment coming. Previously, the causes for judgment were very simply stated. Things fell from above. And then the effects of those judgments were elaborated with great detail. But the focus now is going to turn 
to the instruments of judgment, not so much the effects, but those who are causing the judgments. And more is said about these instruments of judgment than is said about a majority of the apostles. Therefore, we know more about these instruments of judgment than we know about those apostles. And what we find as we read the chapter is just terrifying to behold. Those who are to harm man are bound. They're confined. They're imprisoned. They're like old yeller who was bitten by a rabid wolf and then had to be caged. Man's best friend had become dangerous. Yet these who are bound in chapter 9 are far more dangerous than a rabid dog. In the first judgment, a key is given to release creatures that are bound in the abyss. We see that in verse 1. And in the second, a call goes out to release creatures that are bound in the Euphrates River, verses 13 and 14. So what we need to do is realize what is happening. As these judgments are unfolded, the Lamb is letting dangerous creatures loose. And that's severe. But mixed in, we're also going to see the Lamb's mercy. Let's read about those who are bound in the abyss. Revelation 9.1 And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Clearly, this is not a hydrogen star. This is an intelligent being. He is given a key. Most likely, this is an angel, because elsewhere in Scripture, angels are are referred to as stars. Now, whether this is a good angel from heaven or a bad angel fallen to the earth, we're not told. Some people think this must be the devil. It could be, but the text doesn't say, as the text will say in Revelation chapter 12. His identity is not stated, but his responsibility is because Christ will give him authority to open the abyss, the bottomless pit. Now, what's the abyss? The abyss is a literal place referred to nine times in the New Testament and seven times in Revelation. In Revelation 20, Satan will be imprisoned there for a thousand years. In the story of the demoniac in Luke 8, the demons pled with Jesus not to torment them, not to command them to depart to the abyss. The abyss is where demons are confined. And that place of demon confinement will be opened. Verse 2 and 3. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. And from the smoke came locusts on the earth. Now, locusts are six-legged insects. They're grasshoppers in what's known as the swarming phase. You see, when enough of these grasshoppers come into contact with one another and rub up against each other a certain number of times per hour, they change into a different phase of behavior. Instead of jumping away, they swarm together. So the question is, did John see a swarm of grasshoppers? 
what we'll find is that because of how these creatures are, are described, they aren't grasshoppers. There's something far more terrifying. These are demonic hordes that have been released from the abyss. They aren't insects because insects don't come out of smoke rising from the abyss. Grasshoppers can't survive smoke like that. And neither do Apache helicopters come from the abyss. And the reason why John referred to these as locusts is probably because of their number. Just as there are swarms of locusts, there is a great horde of demons. Let's see their power, what they will do, verses 3 through 5. And they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. And that's exactly what locusts would have naturally done. They would have eaten up all that's green, like the plagues in Exodus 10. But they were to harm only those people. So these are predators, not plant eaters. They were to harm only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This draws us back to chapter 7, verse 3, where God had had his servant sealed. And given this fact, it would show us that all of God's people are protected from God's judgment during this time. And these locust-like creatures were authorized not to kill, but to torment for five months. You see, those who are bound in the abyss will torment those who dwell on the earth. These demonic hordes are let loose, yet even as we read through verses 3 through 5, we saw they were restrained by Christ. The power they possess is given by Christ. Those who may be harmed are limited by Christ. The extent to which they may torment them is regulated by Christ. But make no mistake, the torment that is authorized by Christ is frightening. Look at verse 5. The torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Young people, adults alike, have you ever been stung before by a bee or a wasp or something else? What does it feel like? Well, stings burn. And the sting here burns terribly. Let's look at how the people respond to this kind of sting, this kind of burning. Verse 6, and in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In 2018, almost 50,000 Americans committed suicide. On average, that's 132 per day. In the LGBTQ community, their suicide rate is three times the national average. And during our unique time of COVID-19, suicides have gone up 400%. Yet an amazing number beyond that number of 50,000 per year in America is the fact that an estimated 1.4 million attempt suicide each year And according to this verse, one day the attempted suicides will skyrocket, yet the suicide rate will be zero. Now that is hard to imagine, 
how that could possibly be. But whatever that reality will be in the future, it is beyond words what that will actually mean. People are going to be in tremendous pain. And the point is that that is exactly what sin deserves. Even so, this burning pain is only a foretaste of the fiery judgment awaiting all who do not turn to Christ. It is a frightening pain. But this passage goes on to describe the frightening appearance of this demonic horde, showing us further that these creatures aren't simple grasshoppers because their appearance strikes fear. Look at verses 7 through 10. In their appearance, the locusts were like. That means they're not these things, but they are, are similar. They're parallel to these things. The appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. You see, what's the parallel between a horse and these creatures? It's how they rush with speed into battle. Those on earth won't be able to outrun them. They're like horses. goes on to say, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. And these are the victor's crown, indicating that those on earth will be conquered by them. It says their faces were like human faces. That is to say they were intelligent beings. Those on earth will not be able to outsmart them and outwit them. It says their hair was like woman's hair. A woman's hair is her glory. Yet those on earth will be horrified by it on these creatures. And their teeth like lion's teeth. That is to say these are fierce beings and those on earth will be afraid. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, which shows us that a fly swatter or a boot is not going to work on these grasshoppers because these are armored creatures. So those on earth won't be able to stop or destroy them. It says the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Their noise was a noise that brings terror, and so those on earth will panic and flee, and their tails and stings like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months was in their tails. Again, what power? But even that power is limited, only five months. Last, unlike normal locusts, these locusts have a leader. Look at verse 11. They had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is called Apollyon. And this is Satan, and his name tells us his character. He is a destroyer, that's what you see it say in the margin. And here's the ironic fact. While God seals and preserves his followers, Satan destroys his own. And God is going to use the power of evil to torment sinners. But even during this time of judgment, there is mercy available. We read about the judgment of God in Joel 2, when God will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, and blood and fire and columns of smoke. He promises even at that time, in the great day of the Lord, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, for he is gracious and merciful. 
even for those people on the earth at that time, there is mercy available to them. That is the first woe, demonic torment. And the second, in verses 13 through 19, is death. Because those bound in the Euphrates will kill. Look at verse 13 through 15. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. This is probably the angel who stood at the altar of incense, chapter 8, verse 3, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates. And it's likely then that these are evil angels, demons that are bound in an actual location. We know from the Gospels that demons can be confined to physical spaces, like the group of pigs that the demons asked to be let into in Luke 8. It says, so these four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. These were particular angels held in a particular location with a particular role for a particular time, which shows us that Christ restrains justice until the appointed time and to the specific degree. In the time of judgment, God never takes his hands off the controls. He authorizes measured judgments that are executed by forces of unimaginable power. Look at verse 16. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. According to your calculator, that's 200 million. I heard their number. It wasn't his guess. It wasn't his estimation of what he saw. He heard the exact number. Now, how did we get from four angels to 200 million? Well, these four angels had a massive army to do their bidding. And once again, these aren't normal men on horses, just as the locusts weren't normal locusts. These are demonic hordes. Look at verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates of the color of fire, that would be red, and of sapphire, that's blue, and of sulfur, that's yellow, primary colors. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Obviously, these horses are not natural horses. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Clearly, these are not natural horses. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. That's possibly two billion people. By the smoke and fire and sulfur coming out of their mouths. These are plague-spreading, unnatural horses. These are demonic hordes. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them, they wound. So they wound with their tails and they kill with the plagues that are coming out of their mouths. And this is just grotesque and horrific. Yet this is the judgment that sin deserves. 200 million plague-spreading horses, demonic hordes. And you have to wonder, why are only a third of mankind destroyed by such a force? It's so that two-thirds may remain and be given time to repent 
And as we go through these judgments that are only partial, not complete, what we find is there is an opportunity to turn from sin to God that is available to them. But the summary of the aftermath of these judgments is it's troubling. The summary of the aftermath of these judgments is most troubling and it's most unexpected. Look at verse 20. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. Their choice of sin was no accident. They were addicted to their own way, like a smoker. A smoker who has been warned of the dangers of smoking for years and has had cancer surgeries and many other terrible side effects, yet they continue smoking. You see, these on earth have witnessed horrors and probably witnessed the protection of God upon his followers that they weren't touched by any of it. They were unmoved from their path of sin. So in verses 20 and 22, we see the woeful stubbornness that characterizes those who dwell on the earth. They are bound by sin. They wouldn't repent of their idolatry. Look at verse 20. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. Worshiping demons, there is great irony there because the demons have been tormenting and destroyed, yet they're being worshipped. They didn't give up worshiping idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. These on earth give their affection to objects that can do nothing for them. They give their affection to demons who seek to destroy them. So the spiritualism of our day, and it seems of our area, isn't harmless. The Apostle Paul asserted that demons are behind these kinds of things. They would not repent of their idolatry. Secondly, they wouldn't repent of their iniquity, verse 21. Nor did they repent of their murders, like abortion, or of their sorceries, things that often included drug use, or of their sexual immorality, which is all intimacy outside of a husband and wife in marriage or of their thefts, such as lying on taxes, not working at work, voting for others to pay for handouts, internet hacking and piracy, the list goes on. And Solomon well described the situation of these on the earth. Proverbs 5.22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast by the cords of his sin. As much as a man may think otherwise, he can't sip sin without sin taking hold of him. What a passage. And as I was greeted last week uh, out the door, what a dark passage. We've seen here the severity, yet the mercy of God. He will unleash horrific future supernatural judgment by demonic hordes upon earth dwellers. Yet it is measured only upon a portion of mankind. Now we need to consider, why did Jesus need to reveal this to the churches of Asia Minor? Why do we need to know about this? We're going to be in heaven. Why did the people in the 90s 
need to know about these events that are yet future for even us? Why does it matter to them? Now, it's hard for me to think that you haven't stuck with me given the nature of this text. But if you've tuned out, you need to tune back in right now. The reason why the churches of Asia Minor needed this prophecy was their own sin. Because in the application portion of this book, in the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus pointed out the sins of idolatry and immorality that were tolerated and practiced in the church. Chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You see, the sins of the unrepentant earth dwellers are the same as those in the churches. And Christ's repeated call in the letters is to do what those who dwell on the earth refuse to do. His call again and again and again is repent. And repent means to turn. Turn away from sin. Turn to God. The church is not the refuge for sinners. Being in this building among this people or saying one day, Lord, Lord, won't save you from God's wrath. Because the true church is repentant. All in the true church are recovering from being idolaters and from being held in the cords of iniquity. One day, all the unrepentant will be condemned. So woe to those in the church who will not repent today, for they should have no hope of any better treatment than the those in these texts before us. Yet Jesus is gracious to reveal this to us now, giving us time to repent. Whether that is a repentance under salvation or repentance that returns us to sweet fellowship with Him. Either one, where are you today? Father, as we consider these words, we ask that we would not look at our lives and think, we're okay, we're pretty good. May we carefully consider our lives and compare ourselves to these who dwell on the earth and consider, do we share in their chief characteristic that they were unrepentant? Father, we ask that you would graciously allow us to remember the times that we have called on you and repented of our sin because that is a chief characteristic of your people. And for the one today who is held in the cords of sin, free him. Cause him to call on you, trusting in your mercy. And if anyone does not know you today as Savior, thank you for so graciously allowing them to see what sin deserves 
Allow them to see that they can repent today while there is time and bring them to that point. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.